Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining me today is Joe Kelly, co-founder and CEO of Unchained Capital. If you haven't heard of who Unchained Capital are, where have you been? This is a very prominent Bitcoin company within the space. And Joe has been very podcast shy in the past. Uh, up until now, he'd only appeared on uh, Adam Meisters, the Bitcoin Meisters, the Disrupt Meisters show, but he'd not done a solo podcast. So it's very uh, much a great honor to sit down with Joe and uh, and conduct this interview and, and get to know a little bit more about the man behind Unchained and uh, the path that led him to Bitcoin and and finding this company uh, with, with Drew, his, his co-founder. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, everybody, as usual, for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the show, whatever you're doing. Please make sure you check out the show's sponsors. You can go to once-bitten.com and hit the sponsors page. There you will find many of the other companies that I don't shill so much on the show, but you will find the main sponsors, coinfloor.co.uk, swanbitcoin.com, relay.ch, and shiftcrypto.com. .ch. Use forward slash bitten for all of these companies. With Shift Crypto, you will get 5% discount on their Bitcoin only Bitbox O2 wallet. With Swan, you'll unlock 10 bucks. With CoinFloor and with Relay, you're going to save on commission. But then you can create your own affiliate links and share those with your own friends and family when you're giving out those orange pills. Let's do this show with Joe. Thanks for coming on, mate. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, we are recording. Joe, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. And it's uh, it's an honor that, uh, as we were just discussing, you've you've not been on many, if any, podcasts before. I saw you on Adam's show. Um, so, if for, for those people that are wondering, uh, you know, who the hell is this guy from Unchained Capital? Uh, why have we not heard too much from him before? Would you mind uh, just telling people a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do? and Unchained. Sure. So uh, I'm based here in Austin, Texas. I've been an entrepreneur really all my professional career. Um, really my passion is, is building teams and building organizations. And so that uh, that kind of leads me to be focused on you know, the people uh, around me, the people I'm pulling into a project, um, not always trying to be like the front person or really out there the most outspoken. Um, I've had the good fortune of having a really bright co-founder in Drew Bounsall. If people have seen him Twitter, so he talks about and writes about, also joined by some really excellent executives like uh, Parker Lewis, who's an amazing impact on our company, um, as well as Will Cole. And so kind of one of those folks who likes to, you know, bring in people that uh, are smarter than me um, in, in any way, and then get out of their way. So uh, that's that's kind of my focus here on Unchain is building uh, the most excellent team possible around this idea of building a Bitcoin native financial institution. And uh, so not always is that required, I think, me to be the loudest voice in the room or anything like that. But 
I'm really passionate about what we're doing here. Um, we're trying to get it right for the long term. And so, yeah, I found that, you know, it's been nice to kind of have some form of privacy and just make sure I can stay focused on growing the business. So you are the CEO and co-founder, is that correct? Yep. Mate, that's awesome. All right. Well, we'll, we'll perhaps we'll take the journey and, and kind of go back to you as a young man and, and growing up. Where, where was that based? And, um, you know, give us a kind of a, a look into your, your childhood because you, you know the subject I want to I talk about. But if you could try and lead the listeners up to that and then we'll dive into uh, that specific uh, part of your life. Yeah, so actually, I uh, was born in Anchorage, Alaska, so kind of grew up in a more remote area for a lot of people, and uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He had a small business there that he ran, actually ran with my mom for, for a couple decades, um, and so kind of got that, a little bit of that independent spirit there, maybe. Um, likewise, my dad had always had this dream of sailing around the world. He wanted to do a circumnavigation. Um, he'd had a friend with a sailboat not too far out of Anchorage that we go sailing on every summer, and um, do, do some camping trips and things like that. And, uh, so had a pretty normal childhood with that, you know, even with that kind of going on until you know, tragically when I was a teenager, my mom died of cancer and, uh, my dad who just, you know, great example setter in this regard. Um, a few weeks after she died, he came pulled my sister and I, uh, she's young, three years younger than me, pulled us around the kitchen table and was like, Hey kids, you know, this sailing around the world thing I've been talking about, want to do it. What, what do you think if we just, what, what should, should we go do that? <laughs> We said, okay, dad, sure. Um, so we sold everything, sold our house, packed into a motorhome, uh, drove that from Anchorage to Florida, where we then kind of went boat shopping. Dad found a boat he really liked, been buying catamarans for several years and uh, found one that was perfect, but 38 foot sailboat. Um, we got that prepped over about three or four months for some long distance cruising, moved into the boat, brought our cat, uh, the three of us, and, uh, and then proceeded to live on that for almost three years, um, basically taking that all through the Eastern Caribbean, uh, went through the Panama Canal, um, saw a bunch of great, awesome things, you know, really, like I was kind of talking to about your, what you're doing to your family, I really think that's a great way to get an education for anybody, I, I learned a lot um, as a teenager, I was really fortunate to be able to do that, um, so yeah, I can talk about all the ways that inspired uh, the rest of my path and journey, but uh, it's just like a core experience that was amazing and something I really hope to repeat with my family. There's a big community of people doing that nowadays. I, I don't know what it was like. How, how long ago was this? How old were you? I was so from the age of about 14 to 17. Um, and that would have been from, yeah, 2004 to 2007. Man, so were you, were you even connected to the internet in any way on the boat, like uh, during the day? How was that working? We had a satellite phone, uh, my dad could get email, but yeah, really any, most internet connectivity always happened when we were at port and trying to get on the, the crappy marina Wi-Fi <laughs> or running to an internet cafe. So th this, this now is a phenomenon called uh, cruising, right? Yep. Within the community. Was it, would you turn up at a marina and, you know, just find other families that were doing this kind of thing and bump into the same group of people all around the world, wherever you were, you know, Kind of sailing into a little bit so you know there are uh certain like annual weather patterns right and there are things like trade winds that, that blow in a consistent direction and uh consistently over certain parts of the year and so on the whole on, on, as people are progressing or working on the circumnavigation or just cruising generally they do tend to kind of be in the same places around the same times 
Um, things like you know, avoiding hurricane season above a certain latitude in the Caribbean pushes a lot of boats down into uh, the northern coast of Central America, like Venezuela and Colombia. So uh, in that way, yeah, there, there were a lot of places that were kind of bottlenecks or places where you do run into people and, and familiar faces. Uh, but, you know, really, I mean, and this is one of the things that, that really did, I think, leave an impact on me from the experiences. There weren't many families, not many kids at all. Um, they, they, they were, there were some out there, there were some, but really, you know, 90% of the people I would be interacting with or whatever see usually be adults. And so I think for a, a teenager to kind of go through that and, um, get that, get the confidence or just the understanding of, you know, adults are people too, or, you know, they're, they're, as a teenager, usually just kind of perceive some really wide gap between yourself and a 30 year old or something that um, I kind of had to discard that uh, pretty quickly if I wanted to make friends with anyone. Mate, I can't imagine. I wonder how much you saw of it or how much your, your father hid it from you. He, he would have been judged in a pretty aggressive way from not only your friends and family, but complete strangers. I know I've done it. I've, I've lived it, but this was a joint decision. This wasn't like a decision where I, I just lost my spouse. I mean, this is huge decision-making from your dad at the time. What, what did you see? Were, were you, you know, aware of any of like uh, the struggles he was going through on, on that regard? It's been interesting. I think, uh, yes and no. I, I mean, I think one thing that I've come to really admire about my dad is just how, uh, how readily it can, it can seem like he discards, you know, bad news or um, things that are, uh, you know, th things that many of us would just decide to fester on as a negative, negative thing. So his ability to have like just a great attitude. Um, he's kind of, he had a stroke recently. It's kind of personal, but he's good. He has been struggling with dementia over the recent years. And I've never seen him like once, you know, really have a bad attitude or something about it. And so it's, it's just kind of, uh, my more recent experiences only reinforced that that admiration for yeah making that difficult choice uh, that choice that yeah didn't really have much regard for what other people were going to think of him taking his kids out of school going and doing something like this and so um, but it was also I think a really great just healing moment for us as a family and we got to spend all that time together um, both's name was Jean Jean was my mom's name and uh, so just to kind of have that um, time where it's just the three of us the most important people to each other in the world um on this on this adventure uh so yeah I'll, I'll probably spend the rest of my life kind of admiring that decision and um seeing ways to kind of maintain that same courage and perspective that my dad had at that moment that's amazing man have you seen the film captain fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. that must that must have given you tingles down your spine watching that definitely fuck the heartstrings on that one yeah Oh, has, has, has your dad seen it? Do you know? No, you know, I, I should make him watch that. I think, yeah, that won't have to be on the list. It's a great film. It really is. It gets a bit Hollywoody in some places, uh, but, and a little bit, you know, the story gets a little bit stretched and pulled in, in others, but the, um, you know, the, the underlying message is, uh, is there and it's exactly the same kind of thing that, uh, that you guys experienced and went through. What was the craziest thing you saw at sea? Because that, that's, that's an incredible experience to be out there alone for so long in complete control, right? This, this is total self-sovereignty when you're out there on the ocean. Yeah. No, I, it was super cool because, I, I mean, even back then, uh, 
just is that there's so much more kind of survivalism and you know, prepping kind of a thing. And when you're on a boat, uh, there, there's, there has been technology for a long time around solar panels. Uh, we had a wind generator. Uh, and, so, and, and yeah, I, my dad was always very mechanically inclined and I got to work with him on maintaining our generator, maintaining the systems. I was really into fishing. So often putting a line out wherever we were traveling. Uh, I, I would say, you know, one, one, con, one common conception is that we were just kind of sailing all the time. But realistically, we're, we're mostly in port. 70, 80% of the time we were in, in port, uh, in a marina or at a mooring, uh, checking out some new place. And so there, there were these passages or times in between those. And as far as some of the craziest things we've seen, you know, one of the, it's rare that we ever were ever caught in any bad weather, you know, whether you know, predictions are, are good enough or if you get good weather reports, you're, you're gonna understand if you're gonna make passage for two or three days somewhere, you're trying to time it for a good weather window. But one, one particular area that is almost always bad, one could say is a kind of little pocket between Panama and Colombia in the Caribbean Sea, you have you have trade winds that constantly blow really from the east, uh, and so in that, that eastern part of the Caribbean, where those outlying islands are, you get these waves and these swells that kind of start, and they have the opportunity to build all the way until they get to that sort of southwestern pocket. And so we kind of didn't really have any choice but to but to sail out in what is usually just some, some rougher seas, where yeah, there were these ten to twenty foot swells that we were on, um, and it, you know, these kind of swells where you're when you're in the trough in between the waves you don't really see anything except water on either side of your boat and uh i can remember just kind of you know often we do watches and i remember my dad being on watch uh while i was inside i think i was playing halo or some video game you know, while, while this is going on it's just kind of life of a teenager and uh and i remember my dad calling me out or he was kind of yelling because uh the boat was just going too fast uh usually you, you can hit these issues where if you have a lot of sail up a lot of canvas for depending on where the winds are, you know, that that can sort of be dangerous and stress your, um, stress your boat and the, the components. And so I came out and we had a debate about whether we should reef or take out some sail. And we, we did ultimately, um, but I can remember just watching uh, the GPS as we're kind of riding these waves and uh, we were almost surfing. Like, you know, our boat typically is designed to go about eight, seven or eight knots. Um, we were consistently doing 11 or 12. And then a couple times a swell would pick us up when you surf it. And we were doing like 16 or 17 knots. Um, from the GPS. And so really just, if you don't know sailing, that's really fast for a sailboat. That's a, that is hauling, um, you know, near dangerous, but yeah, it was, uh, that was probably like the most wild um, experience. The, the other experience I like to describe too is something that's like opposite of it that really uh, flipped my expectations was uh, one of our longest passages was from Panama to the Galapagos Islands. That was a, a seven day uh, journey. And uh, we, 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 Unfortunately, timed it a bit early in the season. Uh, there are likewise trade winds that blow in that area, but then there's also something called the doldrums, where for a couple year, a couple months out of the year, there's just no wind. And so here we are, kind of motoring over about seven days uh, in our, with our sailboat. And the, I mean, this is the middle of Pacific Ocean. You know, we're three days from any kind of land, any kind of island, and it's glass. The water is just—it's just this this super flat, pristine thing. And so that, that was just a really uh, different kind of exciting and like just wonderment at what, you know, what the world can be like in a place like that. That gives you time to think, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. And back to just the, that idea that, uh, the most important people in the world were there with me, uh, in, in this, this little microcosm, um, on this, you know, sea of tranquility kind of a thing, which is just cool. Yeah. Cool thing to contemplate. So you, 
you must have taken then what two or three years out of uh, an education system kind of yeah my uh so my my sister and i we were both you know school aged i i completed my 10th grade of uh schooling in, in anchorage she was about three years younger than me and we enrolled in an independent study program offered through brigham young university and uh it was it was a good program like i actually you know, had didn't have much of a problem keeping up with it uh, i will say if I did any schoolwork in a week, I did probably three or four hours of it. It was just really, really put in perspective kind of how much traditional schooling either has just a lot of filler or just, you know, it's not always just about the subject matter. There's just so much else going on that um, fills up someone's, you know, student's seven or eight hour day there. So yeah, I had that independent, independent study program, got my diploma equivalent through that after just a few years. And that was good enough that I had a pretty good essay to get into UT um, Austin here for, for undergrad, but uh, ultimately, yeah, that was, that was my schooling experience before that. So when you guys are done with this trip and you go back to, in air quotes, real life, normal life, I, I hate that that term. I, I, I had that yeah. thrown at me all the time. I still have it thrown at me. Such you know, when are you going to, yeah, I know, right? When are you going to go back? When are you going to get back to real life then? It's like, uh, I'm traveling around the world with my wife and four kids. Seems pretty real to me. It's I was like saying. The, the realest thing i've ever done yeah it's it's crazy so you finish that and then you've got to this is what we found you you've got to reintegrate back into normie land i guess i mean you know to to use a bitcoin kind of meme how did that go yeah that was that was difficult uh i kind of had a i had a transition period where i um coming off the boat i was turning 18, I wanted to get independent. I actually uh, signed on to work on tugboats in New York for a year. So that was a cool uh, way to kind of get my feet under me, get some, get some my own um, income and some, create some savings before starting undergrad, before starting college at UT. And so that was a great, I love the independence from that. I loved um, the, the experience. I, I knew it, it became pretty quick. I didn't, pretty clear quickly that I didn't want to be a tugboat kind of laborer for, for my career, but it was at least a good uh, transition. And then, and then, yeah, I, I really found once I started school at UT, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but the, the idea of reverse culture shock that, uh, you know, people can describe going out to these, you know, getting culture shock, traveling Japan or something like that, but really then coming back to the U S coming back to Austin, uh, and, and then specifically starting UT at UT. Um, it was a, it was a rough period for me. I found, you know, just kind of being thrown in among a lot of other students where it was their first time leaving, their home or, you know, being away from parents, kind of a thing like that. And I really struggled uh, kind of making friends and, uh, and kind of connecting with, with others there. And uh, so that, that was, that was a difficult period for me. And uh, ultimately I decided to drop out. I had enrolled in the business school at UT and I had, I'd already known up to that point uh, that I wanted to be an entrepreneur in the business school back then still a little bit, but it's, it's much better. Uh, was very focused on helping you get a job at Goldman Sachs or you know, go go some corporate corporate route. So I and, and then I knew you know talk about the real world. I knew university was not the real world. <laughs> you know, we can you can debate you know what people's misconceptions on uh, a real world is having to do with a career and things like that. But certainly like that that kind of a bubble environment is not the real world. So I wanted to be out in the quote real world, working on businesses, starting things, uh, working on real projects. And so that's, that's what I left and decided to do. Luckily, my dad uh, was very supportive. Um, and within a few months, I met two other folks who'd be my co-founders of my first 
software company called InfoChimps. Um, but yeah, like just your, your point, wrapping up on that, that, that there was a, a lot of difficulty in just trying to reintegrate into um, society in the US. It's, it's weird. It's real. Um, we, we lived as expatriates uh, in Singapore for 15 years. And we, we would see people leave, you know, they'd be in Singapore working there for three or four years. And then it would come to an end of contract or a job would change or an opportunity would come up and they would go back to their home country and then be back within like nine or 10 months. They're like, the hell, don't go back. Whatever yeah. you do, don't go back. Keep pushing. Find something yeah. else. Keep pushing. Keep going. Because going back, you, because you've changed so much. And th- th- again, we can link this to Bitcoin, you know, you, you, because you change so much, going back and trying to reintegrate with, with people that have not left that street corner is very difficult. It is. It creates a real gap. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I saw I that longing sometimes for, for the, that kind of travel, you know, that there was definitely a strong taste for just adventure that that, that planted in me. And, um, it's a, you know, and, but... Right now, the focus is Bitcoin. The focus is the, the startup, and um, it does provide a lot of opportunities to at least intellectually travel uh, through different ideas. And you know, I know my wife and I and our family will have plenty of time to physically travel in the future. But um... yeah, for sure, man. I want to just point out one thing. Um, it's it's still used this term, isn't it? Like um, to drop out of college. Yeah, and it's such a negative connotation. And I've had a few Zoomers, um, discussions with Zoomers. I had Geki on the show and people like that. And for that age group, I really want to kind of drive home that, you know, don't use dropout, use opt out, because Mm. that is essentially what you are doing, right? You looked at the information that was in front of you. You looked at your surroundings. You realized this doesn't make sense. This isn't, you know, again, in air quotes, the real world. You're probably going to end up in a hell of a lot of debt. So... Why should that be called dropout? It's such a fiat meme. It's, it really pisses me off. So for any youngsters out there, I'd, I'd love to be able to try and change that to opt out. If you see a better opportunity than, than what you're doing at the moment, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great reframing. It really was an, an opting out. And because there's parts of school that I, I did like, you know, and I, I love, I love learning these subjects. I've, I had the time I would audit classes in physics or math and kind of you know, pick up these subjects. Uh, but there is something about that, that default, most programming that come from uh, society. And I, and I definitely had it growing up and the pressure to, to, to go to college or pick this traditional path. Um, it's often well-intentioned. It's people who have these models for you know, how to advance and they want to pass on you know, the, the, the values that they think are important to um, survive and do well in, uh, in the American society, but that, but the, the, the society has evolved. And I think to, to stay up with that involved, uh, that evolving, we do have to have these perspectives that what we think is the real world is, is, is maybe not, or it can, it can be more than that. Uh, and so that part of that traveling experience really opened my eyes to that. And I think that's, uh, also what really helped me be open to all that Bitcoin can show us about, uh, what is wrong about our assumptions for how an economic system has to work, uh, the, the involvement of, of government and money, um, that, that we can be led to, to question those things more readily uh, once we're ready to kind of discard maybe other assumptions or 
ideas we've had about uh, the way our society works. So definitely keen to opt out of you know, tr traditional schooling if that's what someone wants and uh, you know, opt out of anything that they don't want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we often get stuck in careers, right? That we, we are then shamed into leaving as well. Uh, you know, it's a, there's a big kind of negative connotation around resigning and being unemployed. Uh, which I faced down as well. Um, I want to go back to you talking about doing a year on the tugboats because that sounds to me as though you've <laughs> probably got a few. I can't even imagine some of the stories. You must have been working with some some characters. Uh, I'm sure there's some some golden stories in there somewhere. Like, uh, what did they have you doing? Was there any kind of hazing? Any favorite stories you can just share with us? Luckily, no hazing. I, uh, I, I got on there. I was very focused. You know, it's, that was the kind of job where you, you tend to work two weeks on, two weeks off. I was so focused though on making money and, um, doing as best I could that I, I spent two months on there, uh, my first, my first hitch. And, uh, those guys, but you know, it's, it's also kind of rough because you're, uh, you're generally doing six hour shifts. So you're six hours on six hours off. And so you're only ever getting five, five and a half hours of sleep. Um, but at 18 years old, you know, I could, I could handle it. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a fun, interesting adventure. Um, the, the, the folks you work with are, they, they can tend to be rougher around the edges. Um, but usually by the time you're, you become a captain, if you're someone in that kind of position, you probably have your act together enough. So you know, luckily there were a few good role models or folks that uh, I enjoyed working with that thought had their, their acts together. Um, and yeah, I think just it, Trying to think, what's what's like the best good story? Um, you know, I don't know. I think one of my bigger things, or you know, in terms of just the the kind of the, because there are people from different walks of life. You know, I had someone, uh, another deckhand that I worked with and learned from. He was a another young guy, maybe twenty years old, from Baltimore. Um, and then we'd have like a, you know, an engineer, a chief, a, a second engineer. Um, one of them was from Guyana, the others from El Salvador, all these different people from different corners of the world. And it was just interesting to, to see um, how even how quickly the the older folks could be kind of triggered by like the other young deckhand or like, you know, you're in these close quarters. So if he doesn't, you know, say a comment with enough respect or, um, you know, come through on some duty, he was supposed to kind of come through on. Uh, it's just kind of really interesting to observe. Uh, and it, it shocked me how, you know, these, these kind of older folks would let, um, let someone, let this guy, Daryl, like trigger them, you know, so you just kind of would think, ah, oh, you know, aren't you like 40 years old? Like, why, why is, why is this guy able to get under your skin kind of a thing? And so, um, I don't know, it just kind of made me appreciate the, the way attitude can really shape, um, shape one's perspective, shape one's perspective on how other people are behaving and make a big difference in kind of a close uh, working environment. And so uh, for me, it kind of drove a sensitivity around what is what is the dynamic of all the people in the room. I think also kind of translated to startups, honestly, if I think about it, that um, just kind of appreciating who wants a small team, focus on a limited number of things uh, and how to have a, a healthy team dynamic and make sure everybody's kind of getting along. I've, I've always had a kind of predilection towards uh, just curating the group dynamics, being a diplomat, um, kind of crossing bridges and making sure because yeah, on the tugboats, it was really important to me to not 
I don't know, just not make enemies. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I succeeded where I think just in having, being, being friends with everyone uh, while you know, necessarily everyone else wasn't friends with everyone else. Who's the biggest rabble rouser to Unchained? I've got my money on Geiger. Oh man, <laughs> biggest rabble rouser. And there's a couple. Um, there's a couple. We've had some engineers that uh, you know have been very um, exacting, uh, and, I, and I think that's that's one of the fun things about Bitcoin is that you just have people that uh, have some strong opinions, and um, and it's and a lot of these things are things that. Um, I find it's most useful to kind of try to hold in some useful tension. Uh, one example is um, we often get asked, are we a financial services company or a technology company? Um, well, we're, we're both, um, you know, is, is Bitcoin a, a technology or is it money? Well, it's both, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily make somebody pick one or the other. Um, but if you can have, if you can hold a space where the person advocating for our financial services company um, can make that case fully and then likewise, you know, when we need to argue for why we need to invest in technology or do open source software like Caravan, like that's both both those things need to kind of be able to coexist in the space. And then and then I find you, I think you get something that transcends both of those, and you get something that's way more unique, uh, uniquely able to emerge by having both those strong representations. So um, maybe getting a little further from your question, but that's that's something I, I think about is um, you know it's, it's not my job to always necessarily pick one or the other, but if we can, if we can uphold both, it's more ideal. Yeah. Excellent. I was just trying to throw Phil under the bus. He knows I love him. <laughs> if, you're listening, if you're listening, Phil, thanks for setting this up. It's brilliant. Um, what then was your first foray? You said it was called InfoChimps into your, your first foray into entrepreneurship and building that company. What was that quickly? And then we'll get on to, to Unchained and, and you finding Bitcoin. Yeah. And I had a few small projects to be clear before that I had a, for almost a year, uh, ran a, a residential contracting company with a, a friend here in Austin before you know, selling him my, my share of that as, as input was taking off. But, uh, so after, after opting out of, of undergrad, I, uh, was kind of working on that, but also I was very, I was much more intellectually interested in startups, technology, uh, also physics, big fan of complexity science, um, and the stuff that happens in like, the Santa Fe Institute, for instance. And so I uh, actually, you know, one of about three or four of my like lifelong friends I've met this way through Craigslist. Uh, I responded to a Craigslist ad that um, there was this group on UT's campus looking for a website developer. I was getting into development at the time and met uh, these two grad students that were leading this project to develop their website uh, for the group. Uh, those, those two folks were Drew, who's my current co-founder here at Unchained. And then one of the other co-founders at InfoChimps, a guy named Flip. So they uh, were physics grad students at the time. I was really into the form of the physics they were studying called nonlinear dynamics or chaos theory, complexity theory. So really just was like focused on nerding out with them about those things. And in those discussions learned they had started this uh, project called InfoChimps on the side. And InfoChimps was uh, at its first conception meant to be a data marketplace, a place you could find any data set in the world, whether it's census data, weather data, stock prices or baseball scores. So had a had a collection of a big catalog of, of data on this website, um, and those guys they, they needed a business co-founder. So I joined as the chief operating officer, and oh no, at that. Okay, right, Hi. man. So sorry about that. Just a complete system crash this side. Um, 
and and Lauren, during the interim, Lauren has has joined us. Uh, so uh, perhaps we can get back to what you were talking about. You were talking about um, how you met uh, your your partners and were scaling up and and uh, uh, sure. starting InfoChimps. Um, but we we may as well, whilst Lauren is here, we may as well uh, let her into the uh, into the show. This is this is Joe. Hi. Hey, Lauren. Pleasure so, to meet you. What is your question for Joe? Uh, my question is, what is multi-sig? Is it that? Multi-sig? Yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent question. Uh, multi-sig is really kind of a set of rules. Multi-sig is short for multi-signature. And so, so maybe you're familiar with Bitcoin. One of the ways, uh, the main way you move Bitcoin is through signatures from a key. So you use a key to create a signature. And uh, a multi-signature address is an address that holds Bitcoin uh, where the rules for spending from that address depend on multiple keys that will provide multiple signatures. Uh, so one way to kind of visualize this is if, um, you know, maybe there's uh, the, the address has three, it's a, a two of three multi-sig. It's our standard multi-sig we use. And that means there are three keys and two of three keys are required to spend. And so if you want to move the Bitcoin, you need, of those three keys, two of them to create signatures. And you can spell multi-sig in a three of five, you can spell it, it could even be two of two, where you have two keys and both are required to spend. So it's, it's kind of, it's a really rich uh, way of, of this creating a set of rules around moving Bitcoin. And it's, you know, it's, it's common in other kind of security applications. Um, people, a lot of people have visuals of like, the, the way a you know, missile silo works is you have two people, each with keys. They both have to put them in at the same time to unlock. That's another kind of visual for, for what a multi-sig um, contraption would look like. And yeah, it's really, for us, we consider it the safest way to, to store Bitcoin. Mm. So it's basically like a bank, but for Bitcoin, I think. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So you're familiar with but a bank? So it's, it's not going down, it's going up. The, well, the price. Uh, no, because like normally, if you keep your money in the bank, it might go down. Like sometimes it goes down. It's going to go up forever, Lauren. I know, but like normally in the normal <laughs> bank, Daddy. Normally in the normal bank, yes. it, it's inflation. But if if you store it in the kind of like that, um, mm-hmm. uh, multi sig, multi sig, um, then it you'll you'll have it in there, and it'll still go up. Yes, and it will be safer in mm-hmm. the, the multi-sig. That's, that's the Do you have it in multi um, This is not to be discussed on the, on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> we don't want anybody knowing how we... Right. Uh, but, you know, it's good that you're thinking about this already mm. at the age of 10. Yeah. So, yes, it's a, it's a very... It's another step of security for keeping your, your Bitcoin safe. Okay. Any other questions? Uh, no. I think it's done. Okay. All okay. right then. So satisfied. Uh, awesome. sorry. You're satisfied. Satisfied. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Thanks for the answer. And bye. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. See you. See you later. Thanks, mate. Oh, have you ever explained? <laughs> have you ever explained multi sig to a ten year old before? 
No, no, it, it, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, there, it is, it's interesting. Some of these concepts there, they're abstract or we just have to depend on analogies. And so, yeah, to, you know, if somebody doesn't have that analogy from watching a movie of a missile silo, you know, launch codes being provided, it, it is hard. It can be an interesting bridge to try to cross. It's definitely a journey. And uh, so we'll come back to that. But um, sorry for the, the system crash. Um, and thank you for answering uh, Lauren's question. But I think we'd got to the point where you just kind of got together and um, started InfoGimps and were basically looking to um, carry that forward. And, and how did that then turn into you guys kind of discovering Bitcoin? Did, did you all kind of discover it at the same time? Or was one of you further into the rabbit hole? How, how did this all pan out? Yeah, so uh, at, at InfoChimps, you know, I was pretty focused on the business and um, sales, operations, all the things that were, were needed to kind of keep it together and um, be a hopeful success. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Dhruv uh, had learned about Bitcoin in, in like 2010 or 11, so sometime pretty early. Uh, InfoChimps was focused on uh, bit, what at the time was kind of called big data and data analytics and, and software for uh, for running large data applications. And so we were spending a lot of time at open source conferences and dealing with distributed systems and things like that. So, so Drew kind of picked up on and had met some folks that were into Bitcoin. And so we learned about it. We, we got curious about it, but didn't really have the time or attention or even the money to, to invest in it um, until uh, fortunately InfoChimps uh, sold in 2013. We had an acquisition, we're bought by Computer Sciences Corporation. And so it was at that time, um, you know, for a sense of our personalities, you know, I was like, oh, Drew, you know, cool, I got some money, I'm going to get a condo of my own now and kind of, you know, get engaged with my girlfriend, do these, take these kinds of steps. And Drew was like, oh, that's cool. Drew, I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. I think you should too. Um, and so we, luckily, he'd also followed me in making some of those other uh, personal steps. But uh, yeah, bought, bought Bitcoin in 2013. I was also, I'd always been interested in investing in finance and, uh, and understanding money, but never had the even the kind of means to really invest with until uh, until that moment and so uh yeah i really thought felt like it was interesting because i spent a lot of time reading a lot of your your classical great investors like the warren buffett or charlie munger and um people like howard marks and all these folks and it was interesting because insofar as i really came to believe and and like a lot of their philosophies on um you know, investing and ideas and, and understanding also um ideas as they exist in the minds of other people uh, that so much of those philosophies I felt like supported like the investment case for Bitcoin uh, while then you know, usually they're like calling it rat poison or they're not kind of seeing that themselves. And so um, I thought that's a really interesting kind of dichotomy to be holding. Um, you still having respect for those people and their, and their ideas uh, and then you, you know, using their same ideas to kind of lead me into believing more in the investment case for Bitcoin. And then, yeah, really drew uh, just with as being a more technically focused person, um, very you know, math and physics background, uh, able to understand cryptography, a lot of the principles behind Bitcoin, usually my Sherpa to understanding it more at a deeper level uh, across those um, those items. And then, yeah, just when it, you know, after a few years of working at the, the company that bought InfoChimps and knocking out some kind of personal um, bucket list items, we decided to start Unchained in 2016 and really focus on this thing that grabbed our intellectual curiosity for the prior few years. And we thought it was really something that was here to stay and wasn't getting like the treatment and focus it deserved from traditional financial institutions. 
when you were learning about investing and stuff back in in those days there was almost nothing about learning about bitcoin right did you remember the the first kind of what were you using what materials were you were you finding to to help you along your your bitcoin journey yes i think i mean in two categories there there was the the real kind of just um understanding what tends to make good investments and how those you know, good investments are often uh, kind of anti-correlated with others' excitement about them. And so the fact that most people continue to ignore or look at Bitcoin as this not, um, not acceptable or just, just this, this very risky thing, um, that's what created the investment opportunity. That's what kind of created the, the uh, ability to kind of go against the grain. And so um, just every, everything I can continue to learn about uh, Good and in, good investing kind of reinforced some conviction around uh, my Bitcoin holdings. Um, but then when, when it came to just kind of Bitcoin itself, a lot of that just came from from Drew, honestly, like which is kind of my um, my channel and source for um, you know and debating all going all those things around there. Like, well, doesn't it work like this? Well, no, not actually. It's actually it's like this. You know, what do you mean? This block isn't every ten minutes. It has to. Um, or, you know, what does the difficulty adjustment look like? These kinds of things. Um, those. You know, it was really Drew who was always usually a chapter or two ahead of me um, in those those ideas that I could just kind of talk to about it. And you guys have an amazing blog, and of course Parker has done his his gradually then suddenly series, which is incredible and mm-hmm. widely read by the community. Mm-hmm. Was this a conscious thing you wanted to incorporate when you when you started Unchained to to you know build educational material? Yeah, we, we learned, especially even our prior business, that uh, some of the best form of marketing you can hope to have is, is good content. Uh, and so especially evergreen content that's on you know, principles or ideas that will stand the test of time or be around and still valuable for people years down the road. And so even at, at the very beginning, Drew had authored a, a couple of great blog posts that still, I think, hold up about uh, what are the different uh, uh, why is Bitcoin going to be worth a million dollars someday? You know, just kind of for him, what kind of a uh, technical you know, epoch does it does it represent? Uh, for him, it was on the order of more of like the telegraph versus you know the, the internet kind of a thing. It's like that, um, even more significant of a um, sort of future course setting technology. So um, yeah, I think just from, from early on, wanting to invest in content. And then, you know, with really with Parker, we found somebody who yeah, had the background and expertise around global macro, monetary theory, and uh, a deep appreciation for the principles that uh, are making Bitcoin work and make it successful. It's for him to, to author a blog series. Um, you know, it was something you know, we did encourage, but also is very, you know, something he took on independently. And uh, yeah, it's just, I think you can't, it's definitely the kind of thing you can't really buy. You can't buy the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the quality that comes from having just good writing and good content out there as a business. Am I right in thinking the the kind of company ethos or meme, if you will, or tagline, whatever you call them these days, is built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners or financial sure. native services? Is that right? Am I getting it about? Definitely correct? one of ours, yeah. Yeah, we have, we have a few. Friends don't let friends sell Bitcoin, but also, yeah, Bitcoin financial services built by Bitcoiners. What was the first product? when you were kind of like sitting down, brainstorming the ideas, just the pair of you, what was the main thing that you want? Well, the way companies are built is you scratch your own itch, right? 
that that what was worrying you guys at that point enough to be serious about setting up a company around your idea of solving this problem that you were both facing? Yeah, so I, I think there's kind of two categories of thinking at that time that are interesting to evaluate. One was the sort of the set of problems that we thought were solved, um, which we thought, hey, on, you know, on ramps and buying and selling Bitcoin, Coinbase existed, Kraken existed, all this, but we thought that was a solved problem. Um, and then we also thought kind of storage more or less was a solved problem. Oh, you, people either can leave it at Coinbase or you know, Trezors are great, ledgers are, are good too. So Harbor wallets like and, and wallets, that's... Um, that stuff is not as interesting or, or already solved. But where we saw a lot of open space and where people weren't paying attention um, was for the people that like wanted to be in Bitcoin for the long term. <clears throat> there weren't the kind of just there weren't financial services out there for them. Ways to remain in currency while getting the benefit of the Bitcoin, either through making an investment or um, getting some liquidity or cash in the interim to to finance a home purchase or build a business. And so we we observed just through, you know, our, our networks and friends that there were now, you know, we're kind of coming of age and realize there's a whole wealth management industry, um, a whole slew of bankers out there who will often lend against private stock. If you're, you know, you're Mark Zuckerberg, the reason he has a $0 salary is because he's got a bunch of Facebook stock that all these banks will lend to him um, at very low interest rate. and. For, in return for the the, the stock as collateral, um, and so that that was like this this very proven product out there that we saw, and then we but we saw nothing like it in Bitcoin, and we just considered that this idea of uh, you know, Bitcoin as collateral and, and and fiat like loans and lending that, that 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 there needed to be a bridge there that there's some kind of you know connection that needed to be made uh, around those those two ideas. Um, and so after, yeah, kind of discarding the things we thought were already done and looking at between investments or lending and other, other things we can do that keep long-term Bitcoin holders in currency, um, we landed on secured lending as that best trade-off um, because it didn't require like a federal license. There were, there were, there were some regulatory uh, hurdles we had to get through and some state licensing in order to be able to lend. But just triaging the, the different models and ideas landed on secured uh, Bitcoin secured lending as the first product. And I think that was really fortunate and also helped inform uh, a lot of the, the future destiny of our company because really quickly when you decide you want to lend against Bitcoin, you you come to understand you the, the, the primary thing is the, the kind of access to it as collateral. And so we you know, we were going to be lending with our own capital at the start and then capital we raised from others. And we weren't going to be comfortable uh, with the idea that if we just left the collateral on Coinbase or some exchange, um, you know, what if they shut down our account for some reason? What if they don't let us liquidate when we need to? Or you know, just, we're, we're not actually in control of the collateral um, in the way that uh, that is that is necessary. And so that led us to just very early on at the very foundation of our company, respecting the idea of a private key ownership, respecting the idea of uh, ability for us to like have the actual asset um, in hand, if you will. And so that led us to build uh, our, our own custodial setup, our own custody system. Uh, based on our multi-sig and then um, really set the, set the course for the company as having that or a core versus a lot of the other lenders that kind of started like the 2017, 2018 timeframe. We're all building on the backs of uh, Gemini or BitGo or, or some outsourced custody solution. Um, and so the, our, our differentiation was really set uh, at the very beginning. So for people listening that might be wondering how this all works, how, how do you explain it in, in simplest terms? If somebody wanted to 
place a certain amount of Bitcoin with you for some kind of um, yield on that? I mean, are there certain term deposits? Uh, uh, how does it how does it work, and where does that Bitcoin go, and and how does one get it back? Um, it's it's very very new, and a lot of people are, are looking into this and trying to figure it all out as this market kind of develops because more and more financial services are going to come on board, right? Um, there's going to be different things. So what is it you guys focus on and, and what would be the journey of somebody that would be perhaps interested in doing this? Yeah. So maybe and one or two other just pieces of the backdrop I'll provide too is like the the two of the things that really informed us early on at uh, at Unchained was, was appreciating that you know we were getting started when it was only an eight eight or ten billion dollar market cap. And, and for us that sell sounded appreciable. It sounded like there was enough of a market there to do something. Investors weren't ready, really ready to believe that, but you know, we really had to have the confidence that Bitcoin was going to be a you know, ten thousand dollars someday, even a hundred thousand dollars someday to, to start a business. Um, and then, secondly, the other kind of major um, data point that that uh, we we used to to prove out or flesh out this business idea was something that is now called the HODL waves. So basically, we, it was an analysis we we did early on that showed for all the UTXOs, all the Bitcoin that's out there. Uh, how much does it move? How, how much of it moves over time? And you can kind of observe this trend pretty consistently on average between cycles, like about 60% of Bitcoin doesn't move uh, for over a year. So that's that for us, that that's just base of long-term capital um, that's held by, you know, so probably you know, a few people that probably hold a lot of it, but that that are probably held by, you know, these longer-term Bitcoin investors have been in for a while. And so that's, that's, that's what we've always considered our target market, that things like exchanges and, a lot of other products focus on this kind of very short-term, high turnover um, transactional Bitcoin, um, but we see this that there, there's long-term capital in this system, in, in the Bitcoin system, um, and those are folks that have desire to maybe invest their Bitcoin or use it to power investments, um, and so that's that's how we frame things. And so back to your kind of your question about you know what, what we're doing and um, you know. Unchained, we consider ourselves, we're building a Bitcoin native financial services company. Um, that means we're, we're providing the essential financial services products for long-term Bitcoin holders. And uh, that means we want, we want our clients to keep their Bitcoin, want them to keep it for the long-term. Um, and so that means we're, we're very conservative with the kinds of products we launch and, and then and, and how we deliver the products um, in a couple of different unique ways. And so, for instance, we don't have a Bitcoin lending product. We don't offer yield on Bitcoin. Um, part of that's from this idea that we really try to re respect the cap, respect that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Um, if a client loses or sells their Bitcoin, it's, it can be very hard to get it back um, just based on you know, where the price could be in six months or a year from any given point. And so we, uh, you know, all, all our products are, are geared to just making sure that they don't lose it. <laughs> um, we have some other principles we design into our, our platform um, such as you know, key ownership, always making sure clients can hold their keys wherever possible and have access to the permissionless uh, functionality of the Bitcoin product protocol and multi-sig as well. It's an important construct. All of our products use that um, across the board. And so, yeah, really, I think the thing that differentiates Unchained is, is extremely among all the other kind of lenders and other platforms is you know, having started with those ideas that are core of keys uh, multi-sig, and then this, this conservatism around the kinds of products we'll offer. Um, and so what that looks like for clients when they come through our door, you know, really our, our core offering, the, the, the main way we're, we're building client relationships right now is through our, our vault product. Um, the, the simple form of it is a client-controlled vault where they hold two keys, we hold a third key. 
Um, and that means that the client can create these vault addresses that you know, have, that, well, they're holding the two keys, they have unilateral control. So it's a non-custodial storage solution. Um, that product is, uh, it's free for them to, to create a vault, free for them to try out. There's no annual charge. We just charge if we have to sign or you know, recover, do a recovery with the client. Um, and then we have our loans and lending product, which we did start with, but is uh, now kind of a you know, feature adjacent to our vaults we consider. Uh, we'll lend US dollars against Bitcoin as collateral. Uh, we lend at a 40% LTV, again, a conservative choice. We used to lend at 50%. We, we reduced that recently to help uh, protect our clients from any margin calls. Uh, that means if someone would like, say, a $100,000 loan, um, they will post $250,000 of Bitcoin with us. And uh, the address, uh, we, we offer two forms of addresses, one where we control the keys to it, um, which really only a fraction of our, of our borrowers end up choosing. Um, the other, where uh, you know, more than 80% of our, our borrowers choose this, is uh, a multi-institution uh, collateral vault. So when they're posting their Bitcoin with us, they still hold a key. We hold a key, and a, and a third-party agent holds a third key. Um, and so that's, again, this, this form of financial service where we're not rehypothecating the Bitcoin when a client's bringing this collateral, it, it, it sits there. Um, they, have, they have a hand on it more or less through, through their, their possession of the key. Um, and we consider it the most secure way to store the collateral as you know, now we're not a single point of failure um, as an institution. We're, we don't, we're not uh, at risk for, for losing the client's funds if something happens to unchains. And so, um, yeah, that mentioned. And then a third kind of key product for us is a trading product where we'll, uh, clients can buy Bitcoin through us. We settle it directly to their, their multi-signature vault. Uh, so making it very convenient and easy to add to their long-term holdings uh, buying from us directly. Okay, so if somebody were to um, post the $250,000 worth of collateral and take the $100,000 uh, fiat loan, yep. it, do, do you have terms on that? Um, excuse like uh, timeframes. Um, somebody might be using it for a deposit on a house, for example, uh, you know, yeah. pretty basic example. How do they pay the loan back over time and what kind of time can they choose? So we offer loan terms ranging from three months to three years. And the, our loans uh, work with their interest-only payments with a principal payment due at the end. So and clients can pick, pick any range of that. Most clients are, you know, our average term is usually a year uh, and we're very friendly and usually clients will renew their, their loans with us and, and roll them over. Um, so it kind of it almost look, works like a line of credit, but it's, it still is a term loan. Interesting. Is that the, where are you seeing most interest from the client base? Is it for the multi-sig or is it for the loan? Have you seen it swing from time to time? Does it follow the cycles? Like what, what's the kind of insights you guys have? Yeah, certainly the, the lending product is very sensitive to the price of Bitcoin. So where, and, and this is one of the things that uh, was important for us to evolve as a financial institution, even though we, we started with lending, um, lending is a, a more cyclical product uh, when the price is up or there's, there's recent you know, price action um, upwards, clients feel more flush, they feel more um, like they've got a capital base they want to tap into. And so they're more inclined to borrow um, money against their Bitcoin. And so it's definitely been a, a really popular product in the last quarter or two as, as a lot of clients are um, yeah, taking loans to buy a house, invest in their business. Um, some might buy a little more Bitcoin, but you know, for the most part, people are using this for like investment uh, purposes or, or real estate. Um, and yeah, so that finding that the loans have, have been very cyclical, which is great. Uh, it, it also led us to really want um, to have a more kind of 
you know, all weather type product and offering. And that's, and that's really where the vaults come in. Uh, security is a 24 seven, 365 day concern. Um, uh, loans, lending, or you're making a borrow. That's, that's something you might only do when, once you have the need or once you feel like you've got the capital base for it. So uh, yeah, it's, it's important to have these kind of very complementary product offerings we found. And what happens if there is a sharp correction in price and the, the price of Bitcoin is, if, if, the, if you've posted 250,000 and taken 100,000, but the price of Bitcoin keeps tanking, 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 and mm. is approaching the 100,000, at what point does the Bitcoin get liquidated on your side and kind of the debt settle? Is that how it works or what, 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 what's in place for, for customers if yes. that were to be? Yeah, we have a margin call system. That means we uh, notify the client when they're uh, what we call our collateral to principal ratio when that declines to a certain certain amount. Um, so these loans start out with a 250% collateral value to principal ratio. Um, our first margin call, our official margin call doesn't go out until 150%. So once there's $150,000 of collateral backing a 100K loan, um, there are some kind of warnings, some notifications before then that, that we'll notify clients with just to encourage them to add more collateral and make a principal payment to keep that ratio healthy. Um, but once there is a margin call, they have two days uh, to, to cure it. And they can cure it by either posting more Bitcoin or making a principal payment. Um, we don't actually fully liquidate until either the end of those two, two days or if the price declines further, um, there's kind of a more advanced margin call at 135%. That's when they had to have four hours to, to post. And then we don't, we, wouldn't, we don't like fully liquidate either at the end of those four hours or if the price fell so far that um, it got to this 110% uh, collateral value um, ratio. So $110,000 of basically like collateral backing 100K of Bitcoin, that would be a, that would lead to a full liquidation. Um, luckily very rare, especially not, not something we're seeing in these markets and um, have been you know, margin call free luckily for a while. I think also uh, it was interesting making the, the adjustment where we had been at this 50% LTV for all of our history really up until February and then kind of up at these these higher prices, we just didn't want to be in the, we don't want to be in the margin call business. We're not here to sell people's Bitcoin. We don't want to, like, we, we, we feel so much pain. We think as clients do if they have to uh, watch their Bitcoin get sold in those kinds of scenarios. So um, in adjusting down to the 40% LTV, which led to requiring more uh, a, a strength and collateral requirement, we actually got a lot of positive feedback from that. I'd expected some clients to um, squirm some more, but a lot of folks, I think, especially you know, where a lot of our client segment are people you might call OGs, people who have kind of been been through some cycles before. They know that uh, that there's going to be volatility. There's going to be weekends like this last one of a 20, 25% dip in Bitcoin. Um, it's priced over a day or two. And so um, we felt like having these more conservative collateral requirements is just, uh, just us being prudent risk managers. What went down back in March of, of last year was that that must have been you guys must have been, what the hell is going on? That must have been a few, there must have been a few phone calls. Uh, you know, what, what went down? That was uh, that was a difficult time for us. I, I was really proud of the team, how we all really rallied and, and got through that. And um, really uh, also appreciative of our, of our client base, many of whom did, you know, met a lot of margin calls and, um, you know, were very communicative and in general, you know, we had good interactions. Um, there were some liquidations and I'm not going to comment on like the extent of which and things like that, but, um, it was you know, difficult for, for some people, but everyone, you know, took that kind of product. Most, most of all our clients knew the kinds of risks and knew 
who are policies and procedures going in. So it was all able to kind of uh, be handled through what were, were standard practice for us by then. Um, but yeah, I think that was, while that was rough on the lending side, I think, you know, that was really um, some of the earlier days too for us in, in vaults. We'd had our, our vaults product out for about a year. Um, and it was about then that it was also starting to show a lot more signs of greater acceptance and success. Uh, and so, yeah, last, last year was really for us, like the year of, of vaults at Unchained, um, doing very well. And so even though March was kind of rougher on the, on the lending side, um, we had this other, other product to ballast it out and you know, loans picked right up again after another four to six months. Do you think you guys will ever look at yield accounts? Is that something that is on the horizon? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. We think, um, when I mentioned this kind of idea of, of Bitcoin native uh, principles behind our products, you know, the, the three core areas being like private key ownership, multi-sig, and respecting the, the 21 million cap, um, when we, we use those same principles when we look at ways to drive yield. And so we are always looking at ways that that can be done where the client still holds a key or has some semblance of key ownership to the product. Um, also, some form of where it's delivered through multi-sig. And again, just having a very conservative approach. Don't let people lose their Bitcoin. It's not worth an 8% return, even if it's an asset that goes up 200% per year. And so that's, we do have some uh, projects kind of in the works, some things around uh, Bitcoin lending and yield generation that um, still kind of respect some of those principles. It's a hard needle of thread. And um, we, we think it's also especially hard just given how noisy a lot of that space is right now that um, a lot of these platforms have attracted a lot of assets. Um, that's led to, I think, an oversupply uh, from a lot of these lending deaths of coins. So that means they'll take, uh, they'll be doing unsecured loans to other other folks um, that you know, there's just a lot more risk for, for loss of the Bitcoin. And you see things like the GBTC premium uh, going inverted. That's That's hurting a lot of platforms. That's hurting a lot of the um, the, what had been a strong loan origination channel for Bitcoin uh, lending. And so, yeah, you just see even scarier terms out there. I think now that um, a lot of these platforms can't lend into the GBTC trade, um, they're now trying to lend everywhere else and it just, just drives prices lower. So we don't really see a really good risk reward trade off in a lot of the, the Bitcoin lending market today. It scares the shit out of me, man. Yeah, it should. I gotta be honest. It, I did a show with, with Preston about it because he'd done a lot of deep diving into it and I wanted to get his take. Yeah. And I'm not anywhere near comfortable with, with what's going on yet. I think in five years' time, when companies have stood the test of time and can offer uh, something like that, then I think it's definitely worth considering. It would be almost crazy not to. You know, if you could put up a, a Bitcoin as collateral and, and then use that to, to fund your your day-to-day -day and, you know, year-to-year -year, um, fiat, as long as we are in this fiat legacy system, you know, as a Bitcoin, you, you've got, we're navigating both systems, right? So you, you've, got to, yeah. you've got to have a foot on, on either side of that line. But what I'm seeing out there is not encouraging and, uh, you know, DeFi, whatever you want to call it, that getting, that's getting built out on Ethereum and all these other kind of shoddy looking lending practices, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fill me with joy. So I'm definitely waiting 
and and holding fire and, and seeing what kind of transpires. So it seems to me as though that's the kind of are you guys watching very closely what what's what's going on and the mistakes that are going to be made and then and build something out that's going to be way more robust in in the future yeah that's really our aim you know we think that uh we have to be super careful with our you know reputation and uh and the kind of brand we're building here we want to be the you know the, the number one choice for a, a bitcoin holder that's in, in it for the long term around when they kind of when they want to kind of learn about these kinds of financial products or potentially consume them so we're very careful um you know if we if we launch something that can, can lead to negative outcomes for them or or unchained and so yeah we're, we do watch it very closely i do um stay abreast of what blockfi is doing celsius is doing all these things and it um, and sometimes it can be kind of chilling when you hear um, how they kind of give away, you know, client Bitcoin almost like it's candy or just like just the kind of, you know, just like, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different market. I mean, they, they've grown obviously very quickly and um, can attract a lot of assets. And, you know, we've had to spend a lot of time educating investors and other sides of the market on um, why it's still worth building the kind of uh, institution we are. That's so we're really trying to, to find you know, within this broad design space, this broad landscape of what, what can a financial institution look like? You know, what, is the, what is the right, what's the correct institution on top of Bitcoin? Because you have you know, pretty much every example over the last several hundred years, um, the, every financial institution is built on some kind of central bank fiat type infrastructure, fractional reserve. And so I, I don't think necessarily, I think sometimes those are, so, so when you look at what those institutions look like, sometimes it's for you know, maladaptive reasons or they're adapted to this, this weird kind of backbone of the financial system that they have. Um, but in other cases, it, it is for good reasons. Like one, one example I'll give is you, know, you mentioned DeFi and these things. I think you know, something that you do see in a lot of, in all the successful financial institutions uh, the last 100, 200 years is they're very relationship focused, very brand, they're very trust, they're very relationship focused. And, that's not always just for reasons because they are, you know, fiat type institutions. It's because when it comes to money and people transacting with money, they, they want to transact with people that they they know or maybe, maybe they like or that they they know carry um, and, and believe in the same principles that they do. And so I think that's one of the reasons why um, you know, we focus on uh, Bitcoin, not only because we just think it's the correct, most you know, useful cryptocurrency and the only current cryptocurrency that makes sense right now. Um, but also because really that that brand affinity is a is a, is a strong um, strong motivator for, for people to want to work with us and that that idea that we care about Bitcoin just as much as they do or maybe even more arguably in some for some of our clients um, that uh, that that's going to incline people to to want to check out our products and, and work with Unchained for their financial solutions. Um, Did do you yeah. see do you see banks coming in and and offering? Like yield accounts, uh, because they're kind of the way I think about it is that, that you know they've been caught fat, flat-footed for whatever reason, mm -hmm. whether it's regulatory or you know driven by that, and they've got higher barriers to entry. Who knows? Um, but the race is going to be on, and the game theory will be out there. All these banks are all short Bitcoin. A very easy way for them to attract Bitcoin would be to offer yield accounts this is what they do right they know this is their business this is something yeah. that they've done forever offering yield and they have the name and they have still 
a little bit of trust, not not obviously in the Bitcoin community, but with with many of the other uh, people out there, will they become a competition for you? Do you think? Um, I think uh, yes and no. I think um, I mean I think one of the things that you you see with these yield products is um, that they they do attract people. They are they, there are things that like people will pay attention to. Oh, I can get yield on this, but I think it's really worth questioning. And you do find, I think the more people get into, you know, like yourself, um, you know, deep, deeper into Bitcoin, you kind of come to question that very motivation, that idea that you have to have some yield on this, this currency you're saving in, um, that that's, that's a narrative, um, and, and preference that's driven by just an inflation-based currency. So if, you, if you're always having to beat some inflation hurdle, that's what's driving you to always invest on some you know, marginal basis and, and take risk with your, your savings. Um, that, that's not necessarily maybe an incentive that's gonna um, hold in Bitcoin. And so likewise, kind of coming back to th threading this idea of I mean, what, you know, what are the right things to borrow from traditional financial institutions and what are the things to, to, to not do or not pick up? You know, we believe in you know, brand, trust building relationships, th those are things that are always gonna be there for people when they decide to transact with their money. Um, but then things like rehypothecation, you know, necessarily you know, yield is like the flagship kind of product and offering that, that is so often around these, these other kinds of platforms. Um, that's not necessarily how we, how we see uh, going about it. And, and I think you'll have this issue where you really still, most of the Bitcoin is held by um, whether OGs or just, just folks who are not, um, you know, not of the class of, 17, 18, 19, 20 of these, these last four years, they, they bought before that. Um, and you can see in some you know, independent research examples that you know, add up all the Bitcoin that's known to be at Coinbase and BitGo or Gemini and all these institutions. And you're still left with about half of the Bitcoin, um, if not more, that's not held by an intermediary. And we look at that as there, there's kind of a, uh, over the long run, there's a one-way kind of drain or flow out of a lot of these, these institutions towards self-custody solutions as people just get smarter about Bitcoin, they get smarter about the counterparty risks they might be fa uh, facing as they store on these platforms. And so there's always gonna be this drain of, you know, the intermediate bit, intermediated Bitcoin, which is what you need to do to drive yield or other products typically, um, that that's gonna drain into more self-custody based solutions like uh, Unchained or anything, with the Harbor wallet, um, solutions like that. So that's, so we think that's a that's kind of countervailing force to the idea that yeah, as banks launch yield products um, they're not going to just win overnight that like 50% of Bitcoin that's already decided, you know, centralized custody is not, not for it. No, man. And they'll rehypothecate it and they'll fractionally reserve it and they'll do all that crazy stuff uh, unless they completely change their, their habits of old, which we know they won't. And it's, it's an interesting one to see all this chat of CBDCs come up again. And uh, mm -hmm. today, uh, Bank of England have been tweeting about it, and uh, I love I love the tweet from Rishi Sunak, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer over there. I am assembling a task force to look into central bank digital currencies as a digital currencies as a um, an alternative to the growing cryptocurrency and the worry of Bitcoin and all of this kind of nonsense. So, what are your thoughts around that? How far away are we from having a CBDC somewhere? No, I mean, it's, uh, I want, I want to put it way out there like 10 years, you know, it's just, it feels like it's on the one hand, it feels like one of those projects, like the R3 and all these like whack enterprise blockchain things. And, um, 
I don't know. It's because those are, it's in the day more social problems than they are um, technological problems. Like obviously, uh, you know, tokens on Ethereum, tokens on liquid and Bitcoin to an extent too are are things that exist and technically feasible. But um, to to get everybody on board, all the parties that are that you need on board to to have this thing out there and, and working. Think is really a very difficult challenge, and you know, how to coordinate the institutions and um, financial authorities and whatnot around this stuff. So I think that's that's the bigger challenge. And Bitcoin's part of its beauty is that it, it gets it works without the need to drive those um, drive that kind of social consensus process. That it just it kind of happens um, through the different community members, propping up miners and nodes or services like Unchained. Um, that it just it all happens way more organically um, in this kind of inevitable, invincible way so far. So you guys, you have, well, I, I'd love to know what's going on um, amongst the, the different jurisdictions in the States, because it seems to me as though the game theory has already started playing out between Wyoming, Miami, uh, Texas, where you are. Mm-hmm. But you're in a very nice privileged situation where I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, one of your staff members has a very close connection with um, Senator Lummis in, in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And she's fully on side as a Bitcoiner and hopefully uh, will have some sway. I, I think she was trying to help the um, the lawmakers in Texas push through a bill. Could you just fill in the blanks for all of us that don't know exactly what's going on in, in your part of the world and you know what hopefully, fingers crossed, can, can get passed? Sure. Yeah. One of the um, really cool things I'm excited about to see transpire is, um, you know, early on, starting on you know, lending against Bitcoin as collateral, I mentioned there's this reality of, you know, getting your hand on the asset, having holding the keys being you know, the most important thing. Um, <clears throat> while that's very true, there's also, when you're lending, there's contracts and, and legal bases on which you're taking collateral. And so things that need to mirror might be happening physically. Um, you also need to have representations in the, in the legal system. And so, um, that representation for Bitcoin in these, this legal kind of contract arena, it's been very weak and Bitcoin has uh, not a very good place inside of the kind of legal statutes um, really across the board in the US, um, except Wyoming. Wyoming, uh, a couple of years ago, they, um, they launched a set of bills and, and some, some rulemaking at, at the state level that really declared kind of what Bitcoin is in the eyes of the law. Um, and then also declared what it means as a lender to you know, take uh, a security interest in it. Basically, say you have a lien on the Bitcoin, much like a bank has a lien against your house and a mortgage. Um, and so, it, Wyoming here to force like the only state where there's a there's a clear way that's spelled out and, and in a way that makes sense. Because all the ways that right now the law would tell you you need to have a security interest in Bitcoin um, generally involves making a filing, like filing a PDF with the state secretary of state website, which we don't do. It's a lot of privacy issues and. Uh, so we feel like our control of the Bitcoin is enough, but still there's there's this kind of gray area that um, is not not ideal for a lender and can lead to messy situations for the lender and consumers. So what is happening in Texas? What's, what um, this is about to change, hopefully, um, or the, the Texas legislators meeting, they meet every two years. Um, we were able to kind of late last year, there's a, a industry group here called the Texas Blockchain Council. Um, one of our investors is on the board there. We've got a very kind of Bitcoin focused initiative on, on how Texas needs to get in front of this. And so there's a bill that um, looks like it's, it's passed the, the kind of prime first committee. It's not going to pass through one other committee and then would, would likely get the floor and get voter on it. Basically within Texas, spell out uh, the treatment of Bitcoin as, as, an, as an asset, 
right now it's virtual currencies, but Bitcoin being the, the most important um, thing to solve for. Just spelling out the, the type of asset it is, and then also that uh, when we're lending against it or you know, taking it as, as collateral, um, that control is enough. Control is what kind of puts us in that primary position as a lender. No one else can kind of claim they have some sort of rights to it. Um, and then another another thing you kind of get for any legal nerds out there, um, one of the things people worry about is the idea of when, you know, because Bitcoin um, is kind of non-fungible, you know, the UTXO I might send you, Daniel, is sort of you know, unique. Um, there's been this concern that Bitcoin, as I if I sell or give you that UTXO, that if I if there's a lien against it, that that kind of travels with it. So now somebody who trying to get something from Joe Kelly that I sent this UTXO to Daniel, like they can come after you for that that lien. Um, so Texas rules and also within Wyoming's rules also, um, they have this property they call it like take free, the idea that you can take free the Bitcoin you purchase, you take it free of any lien. Um, so just kind of clearing up, clarifying these, these edge cases, these legal gray areas that um, have kind of let like legal scholars kind of point, point at these flaws in Bitcoin or poke holes that um, and it and, and can lead to really messy issues around bankruptcies and stuff like that. Um, so to see the state start to roll out legislation like this really legitimizes Bitcoin and um, sets the stage for even like greater commercial adoption. Uh, things like this, at least from the lending side, I see is these are um, these are things that keep capital dammed up that mean that you don't have the kind of big institutional uh, participants in the lending space that can help drive lower uh, lower interest rates, lower cost of borrowing for clients um, because this you know. Credit investors don't like gray areas. They don't like things that aren't full kind of belt and suspenders feel like it's the, the full Monty on everything. So um, yeah, these pieces of legislation are, are really, uh, really key to just kind of moving the space forward. I think it might be muted. Thank you, I was muted. And what about like the, the KYC issue surrounding uh, Bitcoin? Because that's obviously, something that's going to be debated for, for many years to come and like this fungibility problem and, you know, what's a clean coin, what's a dark coin. <laughs> and, you know, this is something that was, we're going to have to uh, deal with and uh, over time will get sorted out one way or the other, as you know, everything seems to in, in Bitcoin. Um, if, if somebody's opening an account with, with you guys, how much KYC did I have to go through? Did I have to declare how much they're putting into a vault? Uh, you know, what are the kind of things that your the regulations are in place at the moment that you have to follow? Yeah, great question. So <clears throat> we are a financial service. We, we are a financial institution. Um, that means we are subject to some, you know, some you know, laws and regulations around know your customer anti-money laundering. And uh, so we, we do as much as possible, respect client privacy. We only ask for things that are absolutely necessary. We do push back and have you know, creative dialogues with outside consultants and folks on what do the laws actually say? What are we required to do? Um, and so we, we do tier the kind of information we collect uh, for folks that want to just open a vault with us. We only need a name, address, and uh, form, of form of ID. We don't ask for anything more than that. Beyond that, if someone wants a, a loan, you know, that's where we now start. Now we're really in the Kind of deep in the fiat system, like we're you know, unlike a lot of folks that maybe lend stable coins and things like that, we're we're lending actual dollars, we're wiring or ACHing funds into someone's bank account, and so just to participate and you know, have the bank banking partnerships that are necessary to make that work, there is a kind of more stringent requirements around um, kind of anti money laundering, and so we do ask for a few more questions like you know where did you get your Bitcoin, and you know, ideally we're just we're just learning up, oh, you know they bought it in 2017 or something like that, or they they were mining it from 14 to, to 18. And that's, that's great. You know, we just kind of need that 
um, that that bit of data point about that, that that was gotten legitimately. <laughs> Please don't tell us that you uh, you got it from the Silk Road or something like that. That's that's um, not not going to work here. But like uh, otherwise, yeah. So it, it is meant to be as minimal as possible, and um, we do think it's just kind of kind of going to be a reality that that's that's. You know, as a, a bridging service, with one foot in fiat and one foot in Bitcoin, um, that we have to you know uphold some of these regulations. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, I think there's a lot of you know fud out there around privacy and, and KYC, which I think is very um, very appropriate. And like I, I think that just you know politically and, and ideologically, uh, there is often a lot of just overreach on you know, the government's going to protect us by doing these things and like just makes everybody more, uh, everybody's lives like a little bit more miserable all for the sake of hopefully finding some needle in the haystack somewhere. And so um, I think the pushback is very warranted. I do also think though, as a financial service, you know, one of the things, we're, one of the things we do around our vaults is um, we have this recovery key. So when clients, you know, they are having an issue with, a, with one of their keys or they're, um, they lost the key and they need us to, to, to sign um, you know, that basis of, you know, having an ID, having some of this personal information about the client, in many cases, having a, a, an actual relationship, like they know, you know, one of our account executives, or they know some of our client services team, um, that knowledge, um, it's, it can be very fruitful. And in, in, in those kinds of scenarios, you know, somebody um, to, you know, that they, they can't access the device, they need to talk to us, we need to I'd, I'd verify their identity, um, if we're going to take action around their account. Um, and so that, that can help build trust, you know, so that same, um, just as much as it can be a privacy concern and a concern around government overreach and things like that, it can also be a benefit in these other areas where um, you want your financial partner to know who you are. And so if you were being impersonated somewhere along the way, like we have, we have a lot of ways we can kind of catch that and um, know that you know, we need to stop taking any action or discussing anything with the person until we get the actual account holder on the phone. How nimble are you guys? How, how quickly would you change state if all of a sudden a state opened up and it would be way more friendlier to the services that you're trying to um, kind of offer and, and say this bill doesn't go through and you, it, it actually goes, uh, uh, you know, the other way a little bit more and you're over-regulated. Is this something that you guys talk about much? You know, there's some ideas around like, um, yeah, it's kind of, some jurisdictional arbitrage or, you know, having even more sort of international services or services that um, are a little more extra jurisdictional to the U.S. Um, we don't have any any plans to pursue something like that in the, in the near term. We do consider the regulatory environment here to be okay enough. Don't anticipate any anything necessarily blocking our, our ability to um, transact. I think that's one benefit too of the kind of vault service we provide is non-custodial um, in the uh, sense it's usually meant where we don't have unilateral control of the client funds. And so that exempts us from a lot of existing money transmitter license requirements and things like that in the various states. So, um, and then you know, part of the reason the logic of starting a, as a lender first was that you did have Lending Club, On Deck, a lot of these online lenders prop up before Unchained um, and it really paved the way and kind of figured out and sort of settled what does it take to be a you know lender that's based in Texas, but we're still extending loans in Connecticut or California and what's required with that. For those listening, you are global, right? Anyone can open a vault with you for the for the multi sig. Correct. Anyone that's not uh, that's not an official like sanctioned country can open a vault with us. 
and uh, use the, um, the the loan as well? No, lending right now is primarily restricted to the U.S. We do have a few Canadian uh, provinces we can service as well as Australia. Um, we've done a select kind of few international um, loans. We usually just like to um, double check some of the jurisdictional requirements in those cases and usually ask that there's kind of a higher loan minimum of $100,000 when doing international loans. Okay, cool. Well, I think we've covered everything, mate. Um, unless there's something else you wanted to add. What, uh, did, did, we, did we touch on all your services and um, like kind of the vision? Yeah, it's like touching on the services, the vision. Um, and yeah, really, really appreciate the chance to talk about it. I'd say, you know, we're at Unchained, we're continuing to work on improving the, the client experience around our vaults and, and uh, product set through the end of the year. I have a few other lending offerings that we'll be um, starting to talk about over the next few quarters um, and just with launching some other product categories by 2022. So uh, yeah, it's a very exciting you know, building time for us and um, looking to make the most of this great market we're all in. And you guys hosting physical meetups in real life in meet space. Is that correct? You want to share yeah. that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we um, have the privilege of hosting the Austin Bitcoin developers meetup and have been doing that for gosh, almost two years now. Um, back then it was like, you know, you'd have maybe a dozen up to maybe 20, 20 folks or so come in the office for a discussion. Uh, but in recent months, it's really picked up as I think a lot of people are just kind of exhausted from lockdowns and want to get around other people, especially Bitcoiners. So this last one we hosted last last week on Thursday, we had 150 folks uh, at least probably in our office, um, just nerding out about Bitcoin, uh, covering Taproot, Lightning Network, all these kind of cool upgrades to the um, to the software. So yeah, really cool thing. It's it's, it's held every third third Thursday of the month, um, and you know, most of those folks I want to say they came from out of town. Um, so it's definitely more of a kind of uh, journey people are willing to make. We'll also be at Bitcoin 2021 in June. Let's look forward to meeting one there. That'll uh, be down in Miami. You're going to have a booth or something set up and um, everyone walking yep. around? Yeah, we'll have yep. a booth. We'll, we'll be sending a lot of folks, um, you know, without having really had a travel budget for the last this last year. We've said, uh, you know, anyone who wants to go to Bitcoin 2021 on the team can pretty much go. So, um, yeah, expect to see a lot of Unchained shirts and uh, meet more of the team there. Awesome, man. Well, I can't let you go without asking the final question. Otherwise, the hornets will be all over me. If you had one orange pill left to give, who would you give it to and why? I thought about this. Uh, I think the Pope. I think like um, <laughs> the Pope coming out with like Bitcoin is like the divine currency or just like, I don't know, the Vatican starting to hold it as reserve currency. I think um, I think that's just a, a lot of people focus on more the central banking kind of type you know, figureheads. And I think that while that's interesting, I think also... Like the church and people's uh, affinity with, you know, th those ideas, it can kind of be this other like backdoor into um, the mass psyche and uh, even even greater acceptance and entrenchment of Bitcoin. Look at you, man! You're such a pro. You were prepped. You didn't even you didn't even have to. You didn't miss a beat there. Usually, that <laughs> that question takes people by surprise. <laughs> a little prepped on him, yeah. Excellent, Joe. Well, thanks for taking the time, man. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, telling us all about yourself as well as uh, Unchained. Really um, appreciate that. And I hope to look, well, I really hope to meet you guys in Miami in June. Can't wait. Me too. Take care, man. See ya. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening. And thanks, Joe, for breaking your duck for a solo podcast appearance and coming on the show. I hope 
you appear on many others now because uh, there's there's much more that we could have discussed. Uh, so glad we went down the route of your uh, two or three year sailing trip around the world and um, other listeners of the show will know I'm a big proponent of world schooling and unschooling it and taking education into your own hands and it definitely seems to be on the rise in the Bitcoin space of people questioning the education system and thinking about doing something similar. I'm getting a lot of DMs about that and I've had some, a few offline, off the record conversations with a few folks too, which is uh, great to see, happy to help and um, add to the conversation. And uh, great to see what you're doing at Unchained as well. If the listeners haven't heard of Unchained, I'd be shocked, to be honest, uh, because they do great work within the space. They've got a great team. Uh, we touched on a few of those team members. Phil, thanks for putting us in touch uh, and setting this up. That was very, very nice of you. Thank you. Parker's been on the show a couple of times in the past and faced down the questions from Lauren and uh, been um, shaken to his core. So thanks for, uh, thanks for building what you're building. Really appreciate it, guys. Please make sure you check out the show sponsors, once-bitten.com, hit the sponsors page, go see CoinFloor, go see Swan, go see Relay, and go see Shift Crypto. Get your sats onto that Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Take care, guys.